So this is the final section of chapter 3. And in the previous passage, we looked at verses 13 to 26. And we were shown that God's wisdom will benefit us and enrich our lives far more than money and far more than any possessions ever could. And we saw that living according to God's wisdom will give us moral stability and order in our lives. And if you look back at verse 17, it says that the ways of God's wisdom are characterized by pleasantness and peace. Pleasantness could also be translated as kindness, kindness and peace. In our passage this morning, verses 27 to 35, we'll see that God's wisdom is not only intended to benefit our individual lives, but it's also intended to benefit the lives of those around us. Applying God's wisdom to our lives, it will result not only in us receiving blessing, but also in us being a blessing to others. So let's read the passage first before we move forward. Starting in verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I'll give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor but fools get disgrace. And so in the first half, you might have noticed that there are six commands, and they all begin with the words, do not, do not. So God's wisdom for us this morning is instruction in what we should not do. And the focus of these commands is on our treatment of and perception of others, on our neighbor. And then in the second half of this passage, we see the reasoning for these commands, And if you just recall what we read for the scripture reading in Luke chapter 6, Jesus called us to do what with our neighbor? To love him, right? And to even love who? Our enemies, right? He's perfect in wisdom. And he elevated this concept uh, to to a whole other level when he called us to love even our enemies. And that's, that's God's wisdom. It's profound wisdom. Something that goes contrary to the world's thinking. And this morning, you'll notice that we're going to start at the basic level, which is to not hate or do wrong to those who have not deserved it from us, who are innocent towards us. And if you think about instruction that you might give a child, you start with the very basic things first. And so we're going to start with this in Proverbs, but obviously... It doesn't end there. When you apply these principles, the idea is that you're going to move towards not just, okay, I'm not going to do wrong to those who have not harmed me, but it's to get you to not only not do that, but to move you towards what Jesus would call you to do, and that's to do what is right, to love them. So what we're going to do, instead of starting with verse 27, here's what we're going to do. We're going to first look at verse 31. 
which is right in the center of the passage, which says, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. And the reason I want to look at this verse first is because it's the turning point in the section. And I believe it's really the primary point that Solomon's getting at, the primary instruction. The verses before it really describe the ways of a man of violence. And then the verses that follow it give us the reasons why we should not envy a man of violence. And this is common in in Hebrew poetry to sometimes have the main point right at the center to give it the most emphasis. The one right at the center is the one that's given the most emphasis. I believe that's what he's doing here. And when we say the word violence, typically what do you think of? Do you think of physical brutality, physical harm, right? I mean, it typically is what we associate the word violence with. But it's important that we understand that term more fully and understand what a man of violence is. And when we hear the word violence, like I said, we typically think in the physical act of brutality, physical harm. But the Hebrew word has a broader range of meaning, and it basically means wrong or wrongdoing. And in general, it refers to some sort of wickedness against another person. That's violence. Some sort of wickedness against another person. And it can refer to cruelty and injustice as well as physical violence and bloodshed. You see that? So keep that in mind. Not just physical, but it could also refer to injustice and cruelty. And often it's a combination of these things. And here's a more thorough definition. One scholar puts it this way with regard to the word violence, or that's translated as violence, this word expresses the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate, and often making use of physical violence and brutality. And to be cold-blooded, that's to show no pity, no feeling, no compassion, and unscrupulous, that's just to, to have no principles, no moral principles, no acknowledgement of any moral standard. So it's the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others, motivated by greed and hate, and often even making the use of physical violence and brutality. And so that's our central command. We're not to envy a man of violence and to not choose any of his ways. And now we can go back to verse 27. And we're going to see the ways of a man of violence that we're told to to not imitate. Verse 27 to 28, read along. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. These two commands, they really go hand in hand. And the, the main command in these verses is do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. And the second man command reinforces it by saying, don't delay. Don't even put it off. Do it immediately as you can. And so what does it mean to do good? You might think in your mind, oh, just it's very general, isn't it? Are we talking about just, just don't withhold like nice, doing something nice for somebody? Are we talking about just a general pleasantness? Well, as far as it's concerned here, it specifically refers to doing what is right according to God's standards. So to do what is good is to do what is right. To withhold that is to withhold doing what is right. Doing good is to do the right thing. It's to do what you ought to do. And to withhold that 
is refusing to do the right thing. And according to Scripture, whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, to him it's sin. That's from James in the New Testament. And whoever knows the right thing, that word is actually good. It could be translated as good. Whoever knows the good thing to do and, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So it's a sin of omission. It's what we don't do that actually condemns us. And now the command in verse 27 says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. And this is important to understanding what exactly uh, is being commanded. The Hebrew literally says, do not withhold good from its owners. From its owners. In other words, do not withhold good from those who have a rightful claim to it and are entitled to it. And this clarifies what kind of situation is being addressed in this command. It's more specific than we might have thought. The good here is referring to something that you have and that someone else owns or has a rightful claim to. Something that you have that someone else owns or has a rightful claim to. And because of this, you have a moral and or legal obligation to give it to that person. So that's the idea in the command. What could this be then? What, what, could, what could good be? What, what are we talking about? What, something I have that rightfully belongs to another well, it could refer to loans or borrowed items. Psalm 37, 21 says this, the first part of it. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. Uh, a very basic thing. He borrows something and he doesn't pay back. So if someone loans you money, you're to pay that person back as soon as possible, as soon as you are able to. You make it a priority. You don't delay. You don't say, well, I'm not as well off as I'd like to be, so I'm going to hold off on paying, paying that back right away because I may need it for something else. I'm going I'm to kind of stall. I'm not going to make good as soon as I can. The good could refer to wages. In Leviticus 19, verse 13, you read this, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. How so? He's speaking of wages. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And in Deuteronomy, we see a similar command. This is God's commands for his people, Israel, as a nation. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. See the, the similarity there with what we're reading here in Proverbs? So, if you hire people for some sort of work or service, you pay them whatever wages they've rightfully earned. You don't try to cheat them out of what they have expended their time and energy for. And again, what could good, good refer to? It could refer to restitution. This is an even broader idea making amends. In Exodus, we read God's commands for his people Israel again. And he says this, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. That is, you're not going to get the death penalty. Only, 
he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. He caused the harm, and he caused the man to be incapacitated, so he owes it to him to make sure that he is thoroughly healed and to compensate him, to make amends, to make restitution, to compensate him for the time that he's lost. Another example in Exodus 22, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. It is the right thing to do. It's not, ooh, sorry. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll try to work on that. No, I mean, sure, you should be sorry for that, but you make restitution. You make amends. You do the right thing. You compensate him. Uh, to, to just say sorry and to not do anything about that, to make good on it, is to withhold the good that's rightfully due to him. So if you're responsible for causing someone physical harm, or damage to their property, or loss of their income, then you compensate them accordingly. You should do this willingly without it being necessary for them to come to you and ask for it. You should do it willingly without it being necessary for the law to require it of you. For example, if you, again, just a, maybe just a simple example, everyday example. If you had a parked car and there's no one around, you leave them a note. Again, not just, sorry, I hit your car. You know, you leave your note with enough information to make good on it. Contact me. I need to compensate you. So you don't just say you're sorry, you make amends. And again, if someone chooses to forgive you and to say it's okay, you know what, you do not need to make restitution. Okay, great, you've received grace. But the right thing to do is you immediately make amends. You do the right thing. You don't delay. You don't just presume also that, hey, they don't mind. You don't know that. You make good. So if you don't pay back or return what's loaned to you, if you don't pay people the wages they have earned, if you don't make restitution when you're responsible for loss, damage, or injury, then you are withholding good from those to whom it is due. You're not just being inconsiderate you're being unjust. Unjust. That's injustice right there. Not thoughtlessness. Oh, I'm kind of careless. Sorry. You're unjust. And so the basic idea behind the commands in verses 27 through 28 is this. Don't cheat and exploit people. Fulfill your obligations. Do the right thing. Imagine how much more peaceful our society would be, you know, if everyone did that. Wouldn't it be probably a more pleasant place to live? Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. Now look at verse 29 and 30. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. So while the first two commands direct us to not refrain from doing what is good and right, these two commands direct us to refrain from doing harm, doing what is wrong. The word that's translated as evil here in verse 29 is the same word that's translated in verse 30 as harm. So the first command is to not devise a plan to harm your neighbor. 
And notice that this is a neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Why would he dwell trustingly beside you? And the answer is in verse 30. He has done you no harm. He wouldn't expect to receive any harm from you. I mean, there's a kind of a common understanding that your neighbors, you're not going to do wrong to them. Like, hey, man, I mean, we're neighbors, so we kind of we look out for each other, just at a basic level, right? And especially if you're a good neighbor, you haven't done anything malicious to this person, you just assume, yes, I'm not expecting harm from him. I'm dwelling trustingly beside those in my community. The second command in verse 30, we see this, it's to not contend for no reason. And to contend basically means to quarrel or argue, and it involves throwing accusations and sometimes even, even throwing fists. We saw that in that, that one command I gave an example of. They fight and quarrel, and he strikes him with a stone or his fist. So it's not just a verbal confrontation. It could be, though. But it also could involve physical confrontation. And in another sense, it could even get to the point of legal accusations, bringing a lawsuit against somebody. You'll see that do not contend with a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. And I like what one commentator said about this. He said this, groundless arguments and petty disputes are the height of selfishness. They spring from lack of generosity. The picky, petulant person knows no compromise and refuses to grant the neighbor the benefit of the doubt. Every misgiving or misunderstanding becomes a reason for criticism or conflict. Think about that. It, a lot of times, what we perceive as some kind of great offense and harm to us really is a misunderstanding. And we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. So you may have some very obnoxious neighbors. Do you, I mean, does anybody have, uh, you know, maybe just not so pleasant neighbors? Am I, I mean, am I alone here? So, you may have some, I mean, Lord's favor is upon you if, if you don't, but, but still his favor is upon those who do. It's part of our sanctification. So, if, even if we have obnoxious neighbors, if you plant evil against them and contend with them when no harm has been done to you, then you are being, again, not just irritable, but unjust, unjust. Your neighbors may be annoying. They may irritate you. But the question to ask is, has any real harm been done to you? That might change the scenario. If I just wait, has any harm been done to me? So I won't devise evil against them. Not that you should anyway. <laughs> so if we're unwilling, think about this, if, if we're unwilling to bear with inconveniences and annoyances, if we're unwilling to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, then is there any measure of peace we can expect to have in our community if we're not willing to do that? Not to mention in our own home. So do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. One commentator put it this way. It's a little lengthy, but worded so well. We must guard 
not only against secret malice, but against causeless strivings. A propensity to embroil ourselves in quarrels kindles strife instead of following the rule of peace. This spirit is a just hindrance to holiness and inconsistent with the true servant of God. Irritable persons strongly insist upon their rights or what they conceive to be due to them from others. Is there not, they say, a cause? But impartial observers frequently judge it to be striving without a cause, that no harm has been done, none at least to justify the breach of love. That more love on one hand and more forbearance on the other would have prevented the breach. Again, keep, keep what our Lord said, what we just read in Luke 6. The law of love, the rule of peace. Now, let's once again consider the commands in verse 31 before moving on. We have seen the ways of violence, the ways of wickedness towards one's neighbor. And Solomon then says, do not envy anyone who lives this way. Because of the corrupting effects of sin, many people in this fallen world are ready and willing to exploit and injure and deprive and harm others in order to benefit themselves. And we're not unaware of the fact that many people actually become very prosperous by living that way. And although we know this is wrong, again, not rocket science. I read this passage, clearly that's wrong. I wouldn't hold good or plan evil. I mean, it, clearly it's wrong. Although we know it's wrong, we can be tempted to envy those who take moral shortcuts in life and seem to be at ease even as they increase their wealth. So in the remaining verses, we're shown why we should not envy them one bit. We get to the reasons why. Why we should not envy a man of violence. Now look at verse 31 and 32. Or we'll start with 31 just to, to segue into 32. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. And to be devious this is to turn aside from the path of righteousness. God's given you the straight and narrow way according to his standard. It's laid out for us in his word, and we turn aside from that path of righteousness. A man of violence is a devious person. And he's an abomination to the Lord. You know what that means? He's detestable to God. He's offensive to the Lord. That way of life is detestable and offensive to the Lord. Therefore, to choose any of his ways is to choose to do what will greatly displease and offend God. And this is the first reason why you should not envy a man of violence or choose any of his ways. And notice what is said of the upright, though. They are in his confidence. They're in his confidence. That means that they enjoy an intimate relationship with him, closeness, fellowship, friendship with God. In the remaining verses, we see that the second reason 
why we should not envy a man of violence and choose any of his ways is because the Lord is actively opposed to the wicked and his judgment will fall upon them. So before even getting to that reason, just thinking about this way of life, this activity displeases and offends God. Why would you do that? Wisdom would call you to think through something before you do it and something that you're planning and realizing that it's sin and it's an offense to God. You wouldn't choose to do it then because you care to please God because you love him. It's very logical, isn't it? So the second reasons, and Solomon's going to hit these, bam, 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 drive it home. Second reason is, if that's not enough reason in the first place, is because the Lord is actively opposed to the wicked and his judgment will fall on them. How? Verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. No matter how things may seem from our limited perspective, no matter how much a man of violence may seem to prosper or be at ease in life, the reality is that the Lord's curse is upon him. It's upon his house. God's curse will bring ruin and failure upon his home as a righteous act of judgment. That's what we, When we're talking about a curse, it's, it's going to bring ruin and failure as a righteous act of judgment. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Verse 34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The first part of this verse literally says to the scoffers he scoffs, to the mockers he mocks, to the scorners he scorns, or he scorns the scorners. Scorners are those who act with arrogant pride, Proverbs says. They, They defy God. And they despise his moral standards, and they stir up strife with their neighbors. That's what a scorner is. A man of violence is a scorner. This verse is quoted twice, verse 34, in the New Testament, and it's translated this way, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that principle stands for the church as incentive not to sin against God and not to sin against someone else because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The arrogant one who lives in opposition to God will be met with opposition from God. So you live in opposition to God, to his standards, you will be met with opposition from God. So don't presume even as someone who has come to fear the Lord and has received his grace and mercy and salvation, that you could get a free pass to just, okay, I sin, it doesn't matter. I'm standing in grace. You know, I can, I can, I can do this because, after all, didn't, didn't Christ die and pay for all my sins? It doesn't mean God won't oppose you if you do the very things that offend him. Verse 35, the wise will inherit honor but fools get disgrace. And disgrace is another word for shame. It's the opposite of honor. People might want to cut corners and cheat people and all that stuff to kind of get some honor for themselves, and God's going to give them shame. One commentator writes this, while the wise will inherit honor, I think it's up there. (laughs) 
While the wise will inherit honor, fools will be made a public display of dishonor. God lets fools entangle themselves in their folly in a way for all to see. Shame. So keep this in mind. As I said, if you've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, your sins have been forgiven. You've been freed from the eternal penalty that your sins deserve because Christ paid that penalty in your place upon the cross when he suffered and died. However, that does not mean that you're exempt from the earthly consequences of your sin. If you presume upon God's grace and choose to act like a man of violence, guess what? Then you will suffer the consequences. God is gracious and merciful, but he's also holy, righteous, and just. He grants pardon from sin, yes, but he never grants permission to sin. Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means, right? So I want to give you an example of this. King David, righteous through faith, man after God's own heart. He feared the Lord. But we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9 through 14, this account after he had committed adultery with another man's wife, and he, and he murdered the man to cover it all up. He committed a great sin, great offense. And so he's confronted. And in verse 9, starting verse 9, it reads this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. The shame. David said to Nathan, the prophet through whom God had confronted him, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. So he confesses it. He had to be confronted, but he confesses it. He acknowledges offense not only to Uriah and Bathsheba, but his offense to God. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. See what's happening here? He received mercy. He, he, he deserved the death penalty. He deserved to die for what he did. Twice, by the way, if, if that could be possible, adultery, and murder. And the Lord has put away his sin. He said, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you through this adultery, 
shall die. Did David receive grace and mercy? Absolutely. But he suffered great consequences for a great offense against the Lord. So when we read in the passage about God's curses on the house of the wicked, that even the category of the wicked does, yes, refer to unbelievers who are living in continual rebellion against God. But even for the believer, don't, don't just say, ah, it doesn't apply to me. When the believer, the one who does fear the Lord, does what is wicked, there can be a curse for that. Not eternal, but there are earthly consequences. You can be held up to shame, and God can see to it if you do that. Disgrace. So the point in Proverbs 3, verses 33 through 35, is to, to show us the reason why we should not envy or imitate a man of violence. Here's what's in store for him, the Lord's curse and scorn and disgrace. On the positive side, here's what's in store for those who fear the Lord and live according to his wisdom and reject the ways of a man of violence. The Lord's blessing and favor and honor. Wouldn't you want that? Now, I want, to, I want to go to one more text, and why don't you turn to Psalm 37. And by the way, if you're, if, you have, if you're writing stuff down, if you're taking notes, also write down, see Psalm 73, just for future reference. It's a psalm that deals with one's perception of the prosperity of the wicked and, and the temptation to envy them, but to, to see things rightly and come to an understanding of God, uh, God's justice and, and the fact that they are not people to be envied. So it really reinforces everything that we're talking about right here, Psalm 73. But we're going to look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37, written by who? Do you see that? Right, again, a man who feared the Lord, righteous through faith, loved the Lord his God, yeah, he was a sinner just like us. And in Psalm 37, we, we see the wisdom that he communicates regarding this very topic. And the reason I wanted to, to look at this, just to scan through it, is because what we see in Proverbs 3, everything that Solomon's been talking about, his father advocated and, and instructed him in as well. And you'll see the similarities. And I'll let you know what verses we're going to read. We're going to kind of not read them all. But start in verse 1. They're not going to be up on the screen, just because I don't want to make it confusing for the guys back there. So in verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now look at verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Move to Verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, 
but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Now move ahead to verse 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So don't envy a man of violence. Don't choose any of his ways. That temptation might come, but you see things clearly according to God's wisdom, his word, you won't envy him. And you definitely will not choose any of his ways. And I really like that line in verse 37 of Psalm 37, There is a future for the man of peace. It's a future for the man of peace. Choosing the way of wisdom, choosing to live your life in worshipful, loving submission to God, trusting in his wisdom for your life, and doing things his way is choosing the way of peace. Living your life God's way will promote peace, not only in your own home, but also in your community. Now, there's no shortage of people in our society who disrupt peace by hating and wronging others. But as citizens of the coming kingdom of God, as loyal subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, you are to let your light shine in this fallen world by overcoming evil with good. This is part of God's revealed will for you and your life. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. By doing this, you will please God. You will honor him before men by displaying his wisdom in your right treatment of others. And you will give credibility to your testimony concerning the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about that. If we're not so concerned to do what is right, what we know to be right according to God's word and to live according to his standards, yes, we know imperfectly, but if we're not trying that or if we presume upon his grace, what is that duty, what you have to say concerning Christ and the new life that he gives to those who repent and put their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins? It's depleted. Should someone listen to you if you envy the man of violence and choose his ways? They wouldn't. And I would say even that, if you are doing that, if it's so easy to, to commit a high-handed fence against God, that doesn't put you in a good spot for your assurance, if it's easy for you to do that in life. So when Jesus talked about those who are truly saved, a good tree bears good fruit. The sinner is forgiven and is being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ, and it's going to start bearing good fruit. But if wickedness is coming out from this, abundant wickedness, patterns of wickedness, 
what do we think about that tree? What does it say about that tree? Now, the Lord knows who are his, but we should examine ourselves, test ourselves, and we should strive to honor the Lord, to walk in his wisdom, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And guess what? It's easy to say, I love God. I love the Lord. And it's difficult to love our neighbor as ourself, especially when they have done harm to us, especially when they are our enemy. But those who say they love God and don't love their neighbor, it's said of them in Scripture, how can the love of God be in them? Let those thoughts hang on you uh, as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your wisdom for us. And in this passage, just giving us some straightforward commands that that we're not to envy a man of violence or choose his ways and, and to show us what violence is in your sight, cruelty and injustice and harm. Lord, keep us from assuming that we've got that covered completely and to not think of, of how we can apply this to our lives, Lord. We pray that, that we might be those who desire to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord who, who, who called us not only to, to love others in general, but to love even those who have done harm to us, who elevated these commands. We pray that as a people, Lord, we would bring honor to you through the way we treat our neighbors and those around us, Lord. Expose any, any irritability and, and habits that would lead us down the path of, of imitating a man of violence, that we might repent of it, Lord, and choose your wisdom and choose the way of peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.